if you're new or a visitor with us, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And uh, you know what? I, I got a prayer request that um, didn't make it into our bulletin, but I thought it was really important to take just a moment as we stop uh, and, and to pray. Uh, Linda M's brother is in uh, really serious condition with COVID in the Vernon Hospital, and she's asked for prayer because it's not good for him. Let's just take a moment and pray for him. God, we lift up uh, Linda's brother to you in this moment. Um, we entrust him to you, and we ask, Father, that you would be near him and with him. We do pray for his healing, and we trust you, Father, along with Linda, and ask that you would just meet this family in a special way at this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have um, ever had the opportunity to... Uh, to attend a service at or even just to visit one of those historic churches, the sort you find in Europe or that you often see in, in Eastern Canada, these stone buildings. Uh, you'll know that to, to get there, you usually end up right in the center of the town or the village or the city. And, and as you walk up to it, there's often a spire or a steeple that is intended to help you look upward, to remember that we really are not alone. But as you enter the churchyard, you'll see something else, too, that you can't miss. Not up in the air, but at your feet, in the grass. And it's the tombstones of those who have gone before us. With a date, and a dash, and another date. And so right in the midst of the worshiping community's life is front and center the reality not only of the life of the living, but of those who have gone before, of death itself. And now you might be thinking, I, here's what I think. I think, actually, sometimes having a moment to wander through a church graveyard like that. I remember uh, the first experience of jet lag I had. We had gone to England when the year we got married. I was up with the cats at like three in the morning. <laughs> And I remember wandering through, and, and the, the church building in Grasmere in northern England was um, where Wordsworth and his family were buried. And I was walking through and reading these, these tombstones of poets, you know, that, that we've, we've all read, I guess. And, um, and it was really fun, me and, me and the cats. Um, but I think, actually, to do so is sobering, is healthy, and is helpful. And you might be thinking, yeah, sobering, I get that, but healthy and helpful how? <laughs> I saw a cartoon this week, um, and there's a mom. She's sitting on the couch, and she's reading a book, and her son is sitting on the floor staring at the wall because there's this kind of like black sort of swirl on, on the wall, and she said, oh, honey, that's just the abyss. Try not to stare into it. And it made me laugh, um, mostly because all week I had been reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 texts that we'll look at today. And, and the interesting thing about these texts is it says, oh honey, that's just the abyss. Make sure you spend some time looking at it every now and again. What we see through this text and our message today, at the outset seems very pessimistic like a real downer. I read the text in our staff meeting. I think Pastor Jill said, wow, that's an that's a uplifting passage, thick with sarcasm. Uh, it might seem like a downer, but paradoxically, this is actually the most uplifting message we have, I think, in this series. And we'll see how in a moment. But let's pray and just ask God to help us to hear his voice through this text. God, we do thank you that you inspired 
Kohelet, the teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, to teach these things, to set them down for our learning, for our joy even, as we'll see. And so for your glory, help us to hear. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 18. And you, you might remember chapter 3. We've already looked at that in this series. It's the chapter that deals with time. It says there's a time for every event uh, under heaven. And it begins by naming this one. There is a time to be born and a time to die. That's, that's how the text starts, and I want us to jump in because it elaborates more on that second piece in our passage. Verse 18, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless, or as we've seen throughout this series, that word for meaningless, havel, probably best translated fleeting. It's a vapor. It's a breath. Everything is just a breath. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to the dust they return. Who knows if the human spirit rises up and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Question mark. <laughs> so... I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? As we read that, uh, we might have some issues with what's being said here, and one glaring one. As readers on this side of the coming of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when we look back on this text we might think, doesn't this so-called teacher know anything about the life after this life? And the answer is, well, not much, probably. Now, in chapter 12, we do get indications that this teacher knows something about a future. One of the major concluding commands of this book, that's actually really a central reality and theme, is to remember our Creator before our death. Listen to the vivid imagery that we get in chapter 12, it's imagery of like if you broke a pot and the contents fell onto the ground and began to seep into the ground, that's sort of the word picture that he's drawing on here. Listen to what he says in verse 6 and 7. Remember him, your creator, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And we see that last line, and, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. What does he mean by that? Well, he actually doesn't tell us. Or at the very last phrase of the whole book says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, this is presumably offered at the completion of a person's life, which suggests at least something of a reckoning after this life. Now, notice again, let's go back to our passage, 3 verse 21. Who knows if the human spirit rises up and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth, question mark. And, and next to that question mark in my Bible, just kind of in the margin notes, I've just written the classic Sunday school answer. You can look it up in my Bible, it just says, Jesus does. He knows. 
<laughs> you see, the Old Testament writers, they anticipate the coming of God's kingdom reign. And, and, and they suggest that a world, our world, is going to be put right one day. They suggest the restoration of creation, and they know something about the life to come. But until the coming of Jesus, exactly what that means or how God accomplishes it, that is actually not really known by the Old Testament authors. So we need to know that the teacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't know as much as we now know about God's future or about resurrection. Here's what Ian Proven writes in his commentary, kind of in conclusion to that point. He says, if there's one thing that we do not find in this book, it's the joy of resurrection. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Ecclesiastes is seldom read or preached in modern churches. But it would be a huge mistake for us to think that because we know more about a subject, one area of a subject than someone else, that we have nothing else to learn from them. Because in fact, this is God's word to us still. Paul, he says that, that God's word, all of it, the whole of the scriptures are God-breathed, that they're useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that we will be equipped to live as God calls us to. That includes this passage. So then the question becomes for us, how do we hear what God is still saying to us through this text? Well, <laughs> big point is simply this. We see that God tests humans so that we'll see that we are like the animals. <laughs> and then we say, well, what sense are we like the animals? What does he mean by that? And what do we need to take from that? Well, the first and the biggest point maybe is, is simply this we all die. The teacher says, as one dies, so dies the other. We are from the dust, and to the dust we return. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew word for human or for man is Adam. And so, when you read the book of Genesis and it speaks about Adam, there's, okay, this is the creation of a human, or is this the creation of humankind as a whole, or is it both? Okay, so Adam means human being, humankind. And the Adam, we find, is created from the Adamah. It's meant to sound like that. So the earthling comes from the Adamah, is the ground, is the earth, is the dust. The Adam are from the Adamah, the ground. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, so you came from the ground, human, you too will return to the ground. And that's literally true, right? In that sense, at least, we are no different than the animals. <laughs> and for ancient people, the death of animals was always in their faces, so to speak. Now, we in the modern West typically have quite a distance between ourselves and where our food comes from. Like, where does our meat come from? Well, it's in a little package at Costco or Superstore, right? I mean, it's, it's there. But if you're a farmer or if you're a hunter, you, you know something about the death of animals. It's much more in your face. That connection to your food is much closer. You really do know about animals returning to the earth. And it really happens to each and every person. There's no exceptions to it. This is a healthy reminder then, and it continues to be. Like, we cannot extend life indefinitely. 
Though we might try to or we might try to ignore and put out of our mind that that reality is there, we are all assured of the same fate. That's the biggest point that the writer of Ecclesiastes is making here. Now, it's hard, and it really is, for young people to imagine that they won't be alive. When energy and life are coursing through your veins, you can't fathom something other than that until your body starts to break down. Uh, we read in Ecclesiastes, it talks about the grinders no longer grinding anymore, talking about your teeth <laughs> and the like, uh, not being able to see well anymore. You begin to, to come to grips with your mortality as you get older, but for young people, it's so hard to even believe it. Now, there are a number of responses as well that are just really common in our time. So what's our response to that reality of death? Well, for many, there's an obsession with health, an obsession with youthfulness. And I'm not talking about taking care of your body, like regularly exercising and eating healthy, stewarding the God-given gift of your body. That's wonderful. I'm talking about the frantic, overwhelming emphasis on health, on fitness, on a drive to maintain youthfulness, to, to keep my body as young as it can possibly be. Another approach is, is often just called like YOLO, right? Like you only live once. And the, the philosophy that, kinda, that YOLO traces out is if you only live once, I have to throw myself headlong into every possible experience just to eke out as much pleasure from life as I can possibly get. But also, without reference to God, without reference to what that might do to other people around me due to my relationships. And a third approach is, is actually it's just a despair. It's to look at the abyss and just see hopelessness and to see, you know what, what is even the point of living? When there is no creator in the frame who has good plans for you, despair is a logical uh, conclusion if you just sit and think about it for a minute. In every one of these responses, however, our humanity is being drained it's diminished. It's diminished because we've elevated something other than God to the place of ultimacy in our lives. Like, you can aim at being fit and beautiful, but you will wrinkle. Your strong arms will become weak one day. And in the frantic drive to maintain that youth, that may very well come at the cost of your own view of yourself. There will be a distortion if what you value the most is looking good and being youthful. As that departs from you, there will be this incredible crushing dissonance in your mind. You will come out of whack with yourself. And that's a reality that many people who've elevated that to a status of ultimacy experience. You will wrinkle. You will lose your health one day. Writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to pay attention to that. Or if you believe that unless you seize every moment and eke every last bit of pleasure out of it, boy, you're always going to feel like you're missing out on something that you didn't do enough, and you'll never really be able to enjoy the ordinary, everyday moments that God has given you. See, what these approaches don't account for is God, and that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to help us to account for. The writer is trying to help us live as God intends, to live wisely with the God-soaked vision of life. And more, he's actually telling us to enjoy life as it comes from the hand of God, as he's made it to be. And you can't do that, he's arguing, 
until you come to terms with your limitations as a mortal being. We need to start with this recognition. Why? Well, the biggest is this, is that we all have a propensity to live with God pretension, to seek to be the captains of our own souls, like as though we are ultimately in charge of our fate. The reason Adam and Eve experienced death, both spiritually, like they, there's this unraveling of shalom, like their relationship with God is strained and even broken. Their relationships with each other and the earth are too broken. And not only that spiritual brokenness, but they physically will die. The reason for it is that they reached outside the realm of their humanity. They believed the lie that God didn't want them to be happy. I know I'm putting that kind of like, like a kid's book, but it's true. They believed somehow that God hadn't given them enough. That when he says, you're free to eat of every tree in the garden, just not this one, that they despised that. They looked at it and said, it's not enough. God, God you must be keeping something from us. And the serpent tells him that. He says, you'll be like God if you do this one thing he says not to do. And what is that one thing? It's to reach for godness. It's God pretension. It's, it's to say, to take from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say, God, we don't need you. We're mature enough to live apart from you. And the consequence of that is death. Death, the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, brings us back into a right view of ourselves. And probably the best illustration of this comes from a biblical text in, in, in the book of Daniel, an event that happens there. Some of you might remember there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. He had conquered Jerusalem. He had taken a bunch of captives back with him to his city, Daniel being one of them. And we find out in this book that he'd actually set up a statue, a gold statue, and asked people to worship it. Talk about God pretension. And then he had this dream. He couldn't figure out what it meant. So Daniel told him. And Daniel informs him as he interprets this dream that he is not in control of the world any more than he is in control of his own body. Listen to what happens in Daniel 4 verse 29. This is 12 months later, that means after the dream, as the king was walking on the roof of his, of his, of his palace, his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And then, and then look at verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Lord Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And it happens. That's what he experiences. And then jump down to verse 34. Look at the result. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually speaking himself, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. God makes Nebuchadnezzar like an animal so that Nebuchadnezzar can learn how to be human. Recognizing what we have in common with the animals of our creaturely limitations, that's one of the ways that God addresses our God pretensions. 
So what do we take from this? There's really three big things I want us to focus in on. First, ordinariness isn't bad. It's good. The text we're focusing on today is couched in these two statements. Look at verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 3. The writer says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This is the gift of God. And then right at the very end of our passage, verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. That phrase, their lot, that's a theological reality. It's the givenness of life as God gives it to us. So both of these statements, they counsel us to what? Even in the midst of our impending death, to be happy, to do good, to enjoy the work that God has set before us. And all that sounds, well, it sounds rather ordinary, doesn't it? I like how Jacob put it. He, he wrote this in, in our handout for our young adults this, uh, this past spring. He says, whereas we might privilege the spectacular over the simple, Kohelet, or that's the teacher, that's Hebrew for teacher, doesn't see a dualism between the simple earthly blessings of God and the spectacular. He sees both as coming from the hands of God. And just think of what that means for us. It means that by recognizing our commonality with the animals, we are liberated to actually just enjoy what God has given us without an anxious heart, without striving for like, there's got to be something more. Maybe you can relax. I, I said that in a few messages ago. That's God's word to us is to relax. Consider what Jesus says. He actually tells us to look at the birds. Why? To become like them. Listen, this is Jesus' words to us today. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Jesus says, look, look how they get on with each day, just as a gift, to enjoy it. And you can too. Do you trust me? Jesus is asking us through that. And so some of, some of us maybe just need to hear that again today. Maybe you can ask yourself, like, in what ways have I been reaching beyond? Maybe I'm trying to control a situation. Maybe I'm trying to even control people in my life, to, like out of fear, out of fear for what would happen if I opened my hands to it, if I didn't worry about it. Or is there a concern that's just been consuming you? You can open your hands again and trust God with that today. Here's the second thing we desperately need to see. Suffering and death are unavoidable, but God dignifies them both. He's even present in them both. There's a lot of ways that people deal with their suffering in our, in our world today. Sometimes it's just to numb the pain. And that can happen in lots of ways, actually. Like just endlessly scrolling on social media just to try to forget what's going on. It might be getting sucked into like the YouTube world <laughs> or binge watching shows. That's one way. It's, it's distraction. I just, if I distract myself, I don't have to maybe think about the things that are really disturbing my heart. Sometimes the numbing comes through substances or pursuing relationships in ways that are just destructive ultimately. 
There's another approach too, and that's to figure it out. It's like if I can get enough information and get my hands around this, maybe if I understand my suffering well enough, I can sort of step around it or subvert it or figure out how to like maneuver past it. There are helpful ways to learn to deal with pain and suffering and, and mental health concerns, for sure. And there's medications that we ought to be desperately grateful for, absolutely. And yet you can't dodge suffering, not in the end. You can have people help you work through it. You can have doctors help you uh, manage it, but it's still there. And that's the thing that's refreshing about the Bible. It is honest about the reality and inevitability of your suffering and pain. It doesn't paper over it. And more, it actually gives dignity to our suffering. Jacob put it like this, again in our notes. I don't think I have it on the screen, though. He's, he said it like this. It doesn't say, oh, you're suffering? Here's the cure. The Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Instead, it's, it says, your suffering is real and legitimate. It confronts death head on so that we will know that when we face the reality of death or of pain or of illness, this is not alien to God. And not only does it give dignity to our suffering, it transforms it by investing it with the presence of God. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for like the realm of the dead, you are there. The writer says, even as I lay down into my deathbed and I slip away from this world, God is laying next to me. He's there too, even in your death and mine. The very high point of the whole storyline of the Bible, God's saving plan is that God the Son enters our humanity and the whole of our human condition, including the condition of pain and suffering and death. Jesus faces death head on in order to unite us to himself. That doesn't mean that we can dodge death. We can't. Or that we can avoid suffering. We cannot. But we know that our death can be trans our, our death and our suffering can be transformed. They can be like Jesus' death. We can know that death is not final. It's not ultimate. That because we are united with Jesus in his death, we will also be united with him in his resurrection. That's what baptism pictures. That going down to the water is saying, I'm uniting myself with Christ in death. And the coming out of the water is to say, and in life, in resurrection hope. That's what our baptism means. No doubt many of you who are here or who are watching online are suffering. Maybe you're suffering loss in some way, or you're grieving, or you're just wrestling with physical pain today. You can hold on to the one who's holding you, who's with you. Now, I'm not sure if you hear this phrase in your home, but I remember particularly growing up, I heard it a lot. Where are my keys? As every, maybe some of you heard it this morning. All right. Maybe you were saying it this morning. Maybe you who are watching online are not here with us because that was you this morning. I'll pray for you that you find your keys. But I know someone, I know someone who's never once lost their keys. Revelation 1, 18. This is Jesus speaking to John in this incredible vision he's given. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. Like, he knows what it's like. I was dead. 
And now look, behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now, Hades, that's, that's, a, that's a Greek phrase, it's a Greek word that was like the realm of the dead in Greek understanding. And so to combine death and Hades, Jesus is saying, the power that death once held over you is broken. I've got the keys to them. It cannot lock you up anymore. I'm in control of that. So here we see Jesus holding the keys. He will never lose them. And what he says just before this to John and to us as well as what we need to hear today, he says, do not be afraid I am the first and the last. When he says the first and the last, he is saying, I am the living God, one and the same. That's what that phrase means. The living God is standing here telling you, don't be afraid. He's telling us today too, don't be afraid, says the sovereign living God, the maker of all things. And maybe that's something you need to hear today. For the readers of John, those who were John is writing to at the end of the first century, they were facing incredible persecution from the emperor Domitian. He was constantly putting Christians in the threat of, of physical violence all the way to the point of death. And so to them and to us, Jesus literally says, stop being afraid. Why? I like the way Daryl Johnson puts it in his, in his commentary. He says, because Jesus Christ has walked into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy there is. On the cross, he let all the powers that threaten to undo us have their unrestrained way with him. He let death take him captive. And then he bursts out of the prison and carried away the prison keys. He says, stop being afraid. What is it that maybe is crippling you with fear? Is it financial loss? Is it fear of criticism? Is it a fear of pain? I think Johnson is right when he says, at root, every fear, you could probably trace it back to the fear of death itself. It's rooted at rock bottom somewhere there. Paul calls this the last enemy. But look at the Jesus, the image of Jesus here. Let it grab you. I have the keys of death. That tells us that no one else has them. No one else does. He alone does. He is the sovereign over this thing that brings you fear. Jesus says, look, it's a command here. Look, pay attention, look at me. I have the keys, don't be afraid. So we can look at death, even this morning as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us to do, and no longer see merely the abyss, but we turn our eyes to the one who unlocks its power because he says, look at me, pay attention to this. Now, though the teacher of Ecclesiastes doesn't yet know this information, doesn't have that, his message doesn't become less relevant in light of it, but more actually. See, Jesus' incarnation, his taking on of the human form shows the utter worth of the created world. It's a yes to the reality that God created the world and created it good. And that is what God is going to renew. Jesus' resurrection doesn't create a dualism between heaven and earth. The point of it all is to reunite heaven and earth, that God's space and our space would once again overlap and interlock. That's why the final chapter 
two chapters of the Bible look a whole lot like the first two. That's very much on purpose. They tell us that this is the world that God made good and that he loves and that one day he's going to remove the curse of sin and death and evil forever, that he'll purify it, and it will be our true home with God, with us forever. And so here's what this means for people who've come to trust in the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. And this is our final point. And this is really what we take from this as we have this information of the one who holds the keys. What do we do with that? We live with joyful receptivity to the good gift of life. Now, this is one of the reasons why both Jewish and Christian um, leaders throughout the centuries now, the, the millennia, have ignored this book. They say, when I read it, it tells me things like, enjoy life, eat and drink and like be happy. That doesn't sound right. Listen to chapter 11. <laughs> like, it sounds like you're just saying seize the day, right? That carpe diem, just grab life and do the things. And that doesn't sound right to some sorts of religious people. It doesn't sound right. And so we've said that can't be it. That doesn't, that doesn't sound awful enough somehow. <laughs> so I don't know how to say it, but, but the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us, a, this is God's word to us. Listen, chapter 11, look at verses 7 and we're going to read to 12.1. It says, light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. Doesn't it? On a day that's rainy like this, you go, ah, man, I wish we could see the sun. However many years anyone may live, however long it is, that dash and the numbers between it, however long that is, let them enjoy them all. Is he kidding? Are we supposed to be like, okay, what's the catch here? Let's keep reading. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's bringing us back down to reality. Everything to come is meaningless. But remember, that word is probably better fleeting. Everything to come is fleeting. You can't grab hold of it. You who are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Meaning, there are bounds to what enjoyment of life ought to be. Step outside of those, you will be accountable for that. But he doesn't say stop enjoying them. But there are bounds to what that means. Verse 10, so then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless, fleeting, but a breath. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Okay, first, two things here. Number one, the days of your youth doesn't mean in your 20s and maybe some of your 30s. Doesn't mean that. It means if you can't stand anymore, if, if you can't chew your food, if when you look outside, all you see is blurry and you can't hear the birds anymore. So basically, if you were able to dress yourself today and put food in your own mouth, that's what he means by youth. I know, you're welcome. <laughs> All those who are a little bit older. We sometimes call the 60-plus ministry here Harry's Youth Group, Pastor Harry's Youth Group. And according to the teacher, that's literally true. Like, if you can stand up and roll a, a bowling ball in the carpet here, you are youth still. That's the, the, the right of Ecclesiastes means when you can't get out of your bed anymore, then you're no longer youth. 
Second, we might see enjoying and remembering as minimally advice. And some people take it that way. Others actually read this as commands. Like to not do these things is actually breaking the command of God. Think of when a parent, they go out of their way to like think of what my kid like for Christmas this year. And then you like elbow out other parents, maybe, maybe that bad example. Uh, But you go to great lengths to get this toy for your child and you wrap it up and you are so, you're more excited than your kid seems to be on Christmas morning. You can't wait to see them open it. And they open it and they're like, oh, okay. And then they put it on their shelf. It's like, that's a Nerf gun that's meant to be shot at your brother. Come on. It doesn't honor the parent to take the good gift and be like, it's on the shelf over here, it'll be safe. It doesn't. To reject the joy of life that God gives in each moment right here is an affront to the living God. Ian Proven calls uh, what Ecclesiastes is offering a biblical carpe diem. So it's a seize the day, but not in the secular sense. He says it like this, the teacher's carpe diem is an expression of faith, not of self-fulfillment, It's not the greedy consumption of experiences and pleasures before oblivion consumes us. No, rather, it's the patient, joyful embrace of daily life as it comes as a gift from God. The biblical carpe diem, then, is not self-centered. It's not a self-centered response to the uncertainties surrounding death, but a worshipful response to the God of creation, who is also the God of new creation and resurrection. Isn't that good news? Seize the day. Yeah. Go, preach. That was, that was your version of preach, wasn't it? Yeah, got it. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. She put up her hand like, yes, yes. What are these good things? It's the sun on your face, the teacher tells us. It's a good meal with friends. It's a song that brings you joy or maybe stirs some emotions even of, of, of melancholy in you. That's a good thing to enjoy. And it's not just the good things. It's the bad things too. God is there. Those are from the hand of God as well. Somehow in the midst of pain, God is with us in the moments, in the times. So the opposite of this sort of enjoyment, it's rooted in ungratefulness. I think the opposite of enjoyment is grumpiness. David Gibson, he's got this great little book called Living Life Backwards. He writes this. He says, grumpiness is a sin. It is, I think particularly endemic among males. It's not on the screen, by the way. It's the kind of sin that we tolerate and smile at, the kind we indulge as we return to our castles of our home and find it not to be completely to our liking. It's an emotion we cherish in our man caves at the twilight of the day, ruined by interruptions and hassles or small children and annoying people. It's an attitude of heart and mind nurtured by the reign of self-pity, and from which the subjects of our self-made kingdoms can suffer great harm because they've not treated us as we think we deserve. What's the solution to that, to grumpiness? Gibson offers, in the exercise of recalibrating your enjoyments of God's world, start with your heart. Maybe that's particularly for men who nurture that grumpiness. It is a sin. It's not how Christians are live. We're to live with gratefulness, with joy. That's a fruit of the Spirit. So what do we do? We say to our hearts, heart, remember your creator. 
the good God who made the good world and for you to live fully human within it. And then we take the teachings we find here in Ecclesiastes and we get on with it. So carpe diem, in the biblical sense, seize the day for the glory of God and for the joy of yourself and your neighbors. Rejoice and be glad. This is God's day because God is in it all. He's in the good. He's in the bad too. He's with you. One day we will eat and drink and enjoy fellowship at the king's table. We really will where death will have vanished forever. And yet this world and these meals are pointers to that coming day. Again, Gibson says it well, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But for those who love Christ, but those who love Christ, pardon me, cherish eating and drinking because it looks a lot like what we will do after we die. They smell and taste and feel like home. Let's pray. Uh, God, I am so incredibly grateful for this text, for this reminder of your goodness, to remember our Creator, the one who made the world good and made us to live in right relatedness with you within it. We thank you, Jesus, that you experienced death, that you went there for us. We thank you for this reminder that though we too will experience death, it does not have the last word. Thank you, Jesus, that you hold the keys. Fill us with that hope today. And for those, Lord, who maybe have not been living in that hope, I pray, Father, that today they would come home. They would run to you. They would find that you're the God who loves them and gave everything to make them yours forever. So thank you, Father God for the joy that you give us. Holy Spirit, make us a people who truly embrace and live out that gift, that fruit of your spirit of joy this week. Amen.